Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, Church Discipline. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Praise the Lord. Today I would like to share with you about the subject of church discipline. And this is something that is in the Bible. There are instructions about it. Matter of fact, it's commanded. And yet it's something that is not appealing to most people. And much of that reason is because there has been some church discipline administered. And in the vast majority of cases, from my experience, it's been ministered in a totally carnal, selfish way. So many times when you say the word church discipline, people relate it to what they've seen rather than what God's Word teaches, and they reject it and saying, man, that, there's no place for that. I think that most people have either experienced or uh, have heard somebody talk about a person who was churched, or that's what the uh, Protestants would call it. The Catholic Church calls it excommunicate. And much of the time, those things are used as punishments to uh, uh, punish a person who has done something against the conditions, the rules, regulations of a church or something. And I'd say in many or most cases it's done in a totally carnal way to simply uh, get even with somebody for upsetting the boat and rocking the boat. And, of course, people reject that, and that's not proper. But church discipline done in a proper way is a very godly thing, and it's actually intended for the benefit of the person receiving the discipline. You could like it to child discipline. Some people look at child discipline and they talk about, man, how brutal. Why would you ever hit your child? And they recoil at it because maybe when they were a child or certainly somebody that they knew was abused. It was actually child abuse rather than child discipline. And they see that it was negative. It produced negative results. And so therefore they recoil at it and they are not ever going to discipline their child at all. Well, the Bible tells us to discipline our child. The Bible says that a man that spares his rod hates his son. And so godly discipline for a child is correct. A child abuse is wrong. And there has to be a very clear understanding of this, or you'll wind up going to one extreme or the other. But the Bible teaches a truth that's right down the middle, and child discipline is actually for the benefit of the child. Our youngest child, Peter, was very, very strong-willed, and he was opposite our first child. Our first child, Joshua, when we disciplined him, it just worked beautifully. And I mean, Joshua gave us no problems. When we started disciplining Peter, it looked like, man, that uh, World War III was on. And as a result, we recoiled from it for a while, and we let up on discipline. Maybe not totally, but we certainly weren't administering it the way the Word talked about. And as a result, Peter began to get more stubborn. He began to be more self-willed. And by the time he was a year and something year old, and we finally just determined that, hey, the Word's going to work on him the same as it did our first son, and we are going to dig in and make this thing work. I tell you what, we had a big fight on our hands because he is already used to doing his own thing. And uh, we had problems with him. And at first it looked, I'm, I know that some people probably thought we were cruel, that we were spanking him. And I mean, it was just seemed like there was constant confrontation between us. But we were doing it for his benefit. And I've learned this by experience, and I've heard it justified through uh, many different people from different places. People who are even Christian psychiatrists will say this same thing, that discipline actually gives security 
to that strong-willed child and that it is for their own benefit. A person who is undisciplined is an insecure person. They don't know the rules. They don't know the boundaries. But a person who's been disciplined knows exactly where the boundaries are, exactly what they can do, and it tends to make a secure, uh, contented child. And we saw this in our youngest child, Peter. He has turned out to be one of the most sweet, loving, kind, gentle kids that you could ever have. And we've seen the Word of God work on him in a supernatural way. So that child discipline was for his benefit. It wasn't for us trying to get even with him because look what he did. He interrupted my day and so therefore I'm going to take him out and spank him because I'm mad and I'm venting my frustrations on him. That's totally wrong. But if you discipline for the benefit of the person who's being disciplined, then that's totally right. And so... It's not so much the action as it is the attitude that it's done in. Well, when it comes to church discipline, this is one reason that people have rejected that is because many times when church discipline is administered, it's actually done in a vindictive way to hurt, to punish the person who's offended. And that is wrong. But there is a proper church discipline, and it must be understood that it's always for the purpose of correction. Now, we're going to be dealing with a lot of things, but one of the most severe examples of church discipline that can be seen in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul talked about a man who had committed incest, and he told him, he told the church there to turn that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his uh, spirit could be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's church discipline. I'm going to explain this more in detail in just a few minutes. But many people think that, man, that was very harsh and and they saw no redemptive purpose in that at all. It was just like total rejection of this person. But if you'll look in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul is writing to the same group of people and he's brought up this subject once again of this church discipline, specifically this man who was turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And in 2 Corinthians 2, 7, it says, So that the contrary... Why, as ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would comfort, confirm your love unto him. And uh, in the sixth verse, it said that this man's punishment that was inflicted of many was sufficient unto him. So the reason I bring these scriptures out is to say that this man who was disciplined in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he repented. So it was a redemptive thing. It was not a total rejection. It is not what we've heard called excommunication where that person literally is damned and they have no further uh, recourse. Uh, They are damned. There is no repentance from it. They are no longer uh, in union with God. That is not what true church discipline according to the scripture is. There's three main areas of discipline that I'd like to talk about. And you could probably break this up even more, but uh, I'm going to discuss three main areas that many times we don't put these all together. We see them kind of as different ways of dealing with problems among brothers and sisters. But I believe it's all concerning this one area of church discipline, and there are three main areas. First of all, there's an area that would have to do with um, relationships between brothers and sisters or uh, a person in the body of Christ simply not taking responsibility, uh, being totally irresponsible, causing problems that way. The Bible teaches that there is, that we are supposed to discipline people like that. Out of Second Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul is talking here, and he's talking to the Thessalonians church, and he's talking specifically about a man in the church who had refused to work. 
And Paul had said that he gave an example when they were there. They didn't just eat any man's bread for nothing. They worked. They labored night and day. He says, we gave you an example that you were supposed to follow us. And he says, there are some people among you who aren't working at all. They're busy bodies. They're going about from house to house, and they're just mooching off of each other. Well, now the context of this is, remember that the New Testament church uh, in Jerusalem They had such a close love and communion between each other that they literally sold all of their goods and came and brought them and pooled all of their resources. And you can see this in the first four or five chapters of the book of Acts. Some of the other churches, such as in Thessalonica and other places, they didn't do that to that same extent. It wasn't a communal effort. But nonetheless, there was tremendous commitment to the body, and they did share things. And uh, they had their own homes and stuff, but they did share things. And so what this man was doing was he was praying off of the love and the mercy and the kindness of the other members of the body of Christ. And he wasn't sharing his weight of the load. He wasn't pulling his weight, uh, sharing his part of the load. He was simply mooching off all of the other members of the body of Christ and taking advantage of them. And he'd gone about, the Bible says that he'd become a busy body. And uh, Paul said that they should execute judgment Upon this man. In Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six, it says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. For yourselves know that ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail, night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busy bodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. And it goes on. Well, let me continue to read. It says, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now this is an example. Paul is talking about executing church discipline on people who are not working are mooching off the body of Christ. In other words, like a welfare charity case, uh, he, he mentions about executing judgment on that, and we'll be back to that in a minute. But that's one area. Any anything that is work, uh, anyone who's wor- walking disorderly, who is beginning to sow strife among the body, etc. Things like that are justification for church discipline. A second main area is doctrinal issues, and this is this must be administered properly because it's not talking about doctrinal issues such as the length of hair, the length of dress, whether you wear makeup or don't. Those things are clearly stated in the Word of God that those are not pivotal issues, etc. And um, I could spend a lot of time dealing with that. Some people think that they are. Some people think that that's the whole gospel, and they have, they're what I call clothesline preachers. They're always talking about the way you dress and, and putting all of the emphasis on the exterior instead of dealing with the heart of man. But Paul does state that there are there is justification for dealing with a person on doctrinal issues. Out of First Thessalonians, or excuse me, First Timothy, chapter one, verses nineteen and twenty, the scripture there says, "Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck 
of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, doctrinal issues right here. Paul said that he had uh, turned these people over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, similar to the way that he, well, it's the exact same thing that he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with this man who had committed incest. So we see here that a doctrinal issue was worthy of church discipline. The reason I'm calling this uh, turning Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, the reason I'm calling that a doctrinal issue is because in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing once again to Timothy, and he's talking about the same issue. And in verse 17 and 18, he says, And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth of erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. And so here's this same man, Hymenaeus, and I don't know if Philetus is different than Alexander or if that's simply a different name for him, but nonetheless, one of the men is still the same, and it's a further explanation about this man, Hymenaeus, that he turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And it says here that one of the reasons was because they were preaching that the resurrection was past already. And Paul dealt with this very strong terms over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and said that was a pivotal issue. He says if, you're, if there is no resurrection, then Christ didn't raise, and if Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. That was a pivotal issue, and it is worth disciplining a person over. So doctrinal issues you can be uh, corrected over. Matter of fact, in the book of Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, we see the Lord there ministering to the pastor of the church at Thyatira. I'm not sure that it was the pastor. The Bible uses the exact terminology, says the angel. But I believe it was the pastor or a leader, an elder of the church there. And the Lord rebuked him because he had people in his church who were teaching false doctrines, such as Jezebel and those who were teaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And he said he hated those things. And he said unless this elder or this angel repented, and dealt with those people that God would come against him and take away that candlestick out from under him. And so this shows that God expected the elder of the church to execute discipline on doctrinal error in the church. And because he didn't do it, he was being rebuked and he was even going to be corrected. So we see there by example that it was expected and, and commanded even. And then the third, third main area of executing church discipline is in the area of sins or immorality. And again, there needs to be a lot of clarification here because the Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. But it doesn't give us an example that you execute judgment on a person for every single thing that they possibly miss, such as if they don't read their Bible every day. Do you excommunicate them? Well, of course, excommunication isn't even the proper word, but do you use church discipline on them? Well, no, you don't do that. And there are certain things. But when sins reach a a place that it is immoral and it is presenting a bad testimony to other people and it's beginning to infect the rest of the body, then there is a place for church discipline. And this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is talking about with the man who was taken in the act of incest. And Paul there admonished them to execute church discipline upon him. So these are the three main areas of executing church discipline. I believe that all of these... And we'll get more into dealing specifically about the last step, which is turning a person over to Satan. And that's spoken of there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. But I believe that all of these forms of discipline have to come under the, the uh, instruction that the Lord Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 18. I believe that this is a part of church discipline.
And in Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 15, it says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now this uh, terminology here in the 17th verse, where let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican, that would correspond and go along with what was being said over there in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, where they executed this judgment upon a person for not eating, I mean not working and yet eating off of everybody else. So I believe that these scriptures right here that where Jesus spoke, these are steps in church discipline. The first step should be that if you have a problem between you and a brother personally, any type of offense, that you should go and deal with it on a one-to-one basis. And there are other scriptures that would go along with this. In the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was talking about having a brother that was offended, it says if you bring your gift to before the Lord at the altar and remember that your brother has ought against you, not that you have ought against him, but if your brother has ought against you, you should go and reconcile unto him and then come and offer your gift. The same principles repeated many different places. But the first step in church discipline is to first of all go to the person who's offended you and deal with that on an individual basis. Now this right here would stop a tremendous amount of problems. Because most of the time when somebody gets hurt, the first thing they do is run to someone else, to a friend who will sympathize with them and actually reinforce their judgment, their attitudes. And uh, by the time we get through talking to all of our friends and telling them how bad somebody else has been and what they've said and what they've thought, we have our thinking so entrenched that we just literally can't change. We've hardened ourselves in that area and we don't uh, operate in wisdom any longer. And I've personally found out in my dealings with people that much of the time uh, we allow Satan to become the accuser of the brethren and we wind up in our mind accusing and criticizing that person for things that they didn't actually say. Maybe there was some justification, but we blow it up and make it to a point that it's nearly irreconcilable by the time we get through thrashing it out with other people. That is not what the Word says to do. We ought to go, first of all, the first step is to go directly to the person who's offended you or who you have offended them and try and reconcile this thing together. If that one step was followed, I promise you that would deal a death blow to the devil in most areas of strife. That would reconcile most things if people were really committed enough to saying, look, I want to make this thing work. I want to walk in unity with you. Can we reconcile this thing? In most cases, that right there would stop the problem. But it is possible, and it does happen, that a person gets hardened and uh, they just don't reconcile. Matter of fact, when you go and try and patch things up, if anything, they get worse. They get more violent. They may attack you, and so that can happen. So the second step of church discipline would be to take with you one or two more believers. Now, there's many reasons for doing this, but one of them is in the Old Testament law. It says that uh, nobody should ever be judged at the mouth of one witness, but it should be at the mouth of two or at the mouth of three witnesses should every person should every matter be established. And there's many reasons for this. One of them is that if you have to continue on in church discipline, if this person doesn't respond 
when the one or two other people go with you, then you have witnesses that have heard this person's reaction and that can verify and present this to the entire body. And so that's one of the purposes. But I believe that another benefit of bringing another one or two people with you is that when you begin to bring in other people, you get the advantage of a third-person perspective. And sometimes when there's strife between two individuals, many times you aren't really listening to the other person when they're trying to explain what's happened. And I know I've been guilty of this. All of us have been guilty of it, that when you're in a strifeful situation with the person and when they're telling you their side of the story, you aren't actually even listening to them, but instead you're trying to think of what you're going to say next. And many times we just really don't listen to the other person and we don't really hear what they're saying. So when you take a third person with you, a third person perspective, what will happen is that impartial person will be able to sit there and hear both sides of the story and they may be able to give a perspective on it and say, now wait a minute, can you all see what's happened here? You have misunderstood them. This has been misunderstood. This is what they really meant to say. This is what they're trying to express. It's just Satan that has blown this thing out of proportion. Many times that third person perspective will work and diffuse a situation. It's very similar to bringing in an arbitrator in a labor dispute or something like that, where this person comes in and he's not trying to just represent one side of the story, but he's trying to see if there's any way of compromise between the two. And so that's another benefit of bringing one or two other people with you, is that, again, it can diffuse the situation and bring back harmony and unity between the offending parties. So that's the second step in church discipline. The third step is that if the person did not receive the... uh, correction that was trying to be administered by one or two other people going with you, then the third step would be to bring that person and the issue, the situation before the entire church body and present it to them. Let them come into agreement and pass a judgment on it. And this again is meant to diffuse the situation because most people, uh, they may think that, well, your judgment, your attitude, your evaluation of this situation, I just don't care what you think. Who cares? And they they may have a total disregard for you. But very few people are so hardened that they think they're the only one that's right. And if you brought a situation before an entire church body, and if the entire church was stood in agreement and said, this is right and this is wrong, this person is right and you are wrong, if the entire church body did that, especially a church body where there was fellowship established between the members of that body and this person who's going to be disciplined. And if he respected the leadership and respected those people there and their judgment, uh, in the majority of cases, I believe that that would cause that person to rethink their position. It would cause them to humble themselves and say, look, I can't be the only one that's right. I love this person. I respect them. And I believe that, again, the purpose of this is to, once again, diffuse the situation and try and bring harmony back into that relationship. But if a person hardens themselves so that the entire church is in agreement, everybody agrees, they've prayed about it, and they feel that this is the wisdom of God, if that person does not respond to that, then the final step, as Jesus spoke here in Matthew eighteen seventeen, it says, If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, I believe that this is the same thing that happened over in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, 
where he says, keep no, uh, let me read this here. It says, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I believe that that's the same step. And also, I believe that it's the exact same thing that is spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it's talking about turning this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What it actually is, is the church just withdraws from this man spiritually and physically. And the purpose of it is to once again bring about correction in his life. Now, I'll come back to that in just a second. Let me turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and let's deal with this instance of a man being turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And we need to explain this some, because I, I believe that most people have a total misconception about this. I know that I read these scriptures a long time before I ever began to get any understanding of them, and at first, this looked to me like uh, it was just terrible. It looked to me like you were totally damning this person. I mean, bringing judgment on them and... Uh, you know, who were we to do that? God's the one that damns a person or saves them. And to me, it just looked like it was severe. It was violent. I didn't have understanding of it. And so something you don't understand like that, you just recoil from it. That's exactly what I did. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 1, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as, it, as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. This is a case of incest. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory in is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And we could spend a lot of time talking about this. This is actually a related topic, but uh, it would contribute and, and help you in your understanding of church discipline, but it's uh, it would take a lot of time to expound on this completely. But what he's simply saying is that if you don't discipline this thing, it's similar to a cancer being in your body. If you don't cut that thing out, then it's going to continue to grow and it will uh, affect the whole body. And he even says this, talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander over there in Second Timothy chapter 1. He says, Their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme, etc. So, in that instance, he's talking about a little leaven will leaven the whole lump, or a little bit of cancer will begin to spread. You've got to deal with this for the sake of the body. Of course, it's also for the sake of the individual, but it has more ramifications than that. For the sake of the body, we've got to begin to start exercising church discipline. He says in verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sac sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Here he's talking about keeping separate.
from the world. Touch not the unclean thing. Come out from among them, and I will receive you, etc. He said, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must he needs go out of the world. In other words, he was saying that you ought to be separate. You shouldn't be living in sin and associating with those who are. But he's, he's saying, It's not really. I didn't write that so much for the uh, benefit of you fellowshipping with unbelievers, because he says, To get away from unbelievers who are contaminated, he says, You'd literally have to go out of the world. But he says, Now I've written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one, know not to eat. And this is a further explanation of things that would be thought worthy of church discipline. A person who's a fornicator, covetous, idolater, a railer, a drunkard, an extortioner. Those things would constitute grounds of church discipline, would fall into those three categories we've already talked about. Verse 12, he says, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And this is a statement that uh, is really powerful. That God brings judgment upon an unbeliever because, see, they don't have the covenant. The new covenant promises for those who have accepted Jesus that their punishment has been placed upon Jesus and God is not going to punish them. Now, that doesn't mean God won't correct them. There is a correction, a chastisement spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12 and other places. The Word of God is given to correct us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. But God does not bring judgment or punishment upon a person who's a believer. Now, an unbeliever, he will. He's, he doesn't just do it every single time they need it, but such as in the case of Herod being eaten with worms, etc., it can happen. But as a whole, God doesn't bring judgment upon the believer. Uh, if, the, if the believer is going to be judged, then the body of Christ has to do it. And it says this, that we judge those that are within, but God judges those that are without. God executes. Uh, deferred church discipline to the body of Christ. We need to discipline each other. And there needs to be many qualifications on this. Keep listening as we go through this. We'll try and put it all in perspective. But here he's talking about a man who had committed incest and he said that this man should be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now this should be after the admonition that Jesus gave about first of all going to this man individually and confronting him. That should have been done. Then one or two others should have gone with you. And then it should have been brought before the whole church. And if he fails to repent, then he should be turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now exactly what does this mean? Turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, I believe that what this is actually talking about is that you do not just say, Satan, he's yours, we damn him, he's now lost his salvation, he's reprobate, he's going to hell, etc. That cannot be what it means because this same man repented in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we've already read those scriptures. Hebrews chapter 6 says that if a man does fall away, it's impossible to renew him again under repentance. So this was not a case where this man lost his salvation and then prayed through and came back into fellowship with God and was born again again. Uh, there may be some questions on that. I know that there is a lot of teaching. Many people teach that you're saved and lost and saved and lost every time you commit a sin. If you don't get it confessed, you're damned, etc. And that needs to be clarified. Uh, I, believe it's imp- I believe it's possible for a person to renounce their salvation one time, but then there is no repentance from that. This man, when he was turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, was not damned 
or he could not have repented and have been restored back into fellowship. I have a tape entitled Security of the Believer that will explain that if anybody has further questions about that. So this is not talking about damning this man. Actually, the church discipline, what it is, we should be praying for each other. We should be interceding for each other and binding Satan over each other continually. In John chapter 20 and verse 23, Here's what the, Jesus said there. He said, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained unto them. When it says that we have power to remit people's sins, this word remit does not mean forgiveness. Many people use them interchangeably. But the word remittance has to do with the effects of sin. For instance, if a person has leukemia and all, and they begin to start receiving the treatments for leukemia, they can reach a place that is called remission. That, that's what the doctors call it. They say that the leukemia is in remission. Now, that does not mean that the leukemia is not in the body. It just means that it isn't discernible. All of the visible effects of it, such as the platelet count and different things like that, are no longer out of balance. Everything looks okay, but the cancer, the leukemia, is still there. It's just in a state of remission where the visible effects are no longer uh, seen. Well, the word remission has to do with that. It has to do with the effects of sin. In other words, you can't forgive a person's sins for them. If you could, then we could just remit the sins of the whole world. Everybody would be born again, and we go into the millennium. We can't remit sins in the sense that you can't forgive sins, but you can deal with the effects that that sin is having on a person through your intercession. For instance, if your child is out living in sin, and maybe they're on cocaine and they're on drugs, Yet through your intercession, you can pray and say, God, I know that they're taking enough drugs that it should fry their brain. They should become a vegetable. But I'm standing here in intercession and I'm rebuking that thing. I'm remitting their sins and I'm speaking that it is not going to have the impact on them that Satan would like for it to have. And you can actually bind Satan up and you can preserve that person. Now, you can't do it totally because they're constantly warring against you, and I guarantee you they're going to be more consistent opening the door to the devil than you are consistent in opening the door to God and rebuking the devil. And so that's not a long-term thing. I'm not just saying that you allow your children to go on and say, well, it's fine because I'm going to intercede and bind the devil over them, and their sins will be remitted and nothing will come of it. That's not true, but at the same time, through your intercession, you can preserve those children to a large degree. And, of course, you could do it with somebody other than your child. You could see a person in your church who fell back into uh, alcoholism, which Paul mentioned here, you know, about a drunkard. And he said that was one of those things that would constitute uh, church discipline over. If a person continually is falling back into that, and maybe they go back to hitting the bottle, well, through your intercession, you can remit their sins. And maybe they are, uh, in the past, they've had terrible car wrecks while they're driving drunk. You could pray and bind the devil over them and pray God's mercy and protection on them and literally keep them from being killed when Satan would like to kill them. You have the power through intercession to do that. On the other hand, that verse in John twenty twenty three says, Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. And that scripture says that we have power to retain sins unto people. Now, I've heard some people try and explain this verse by saying that if you witness to a person and share the truth about Jesus with them, and if they accept it and become born again, then you've remitted their sins. And if you fail to share the truth with a person, then in effect you are retaining their sins. 
Well, those statements that they're making are true, but that is not what this verse is talking about. I believe it's talking directly about intercession, the authority, the power that God gave us, that we can actually bind Satan in a person's life or we can actually loose the devil in a person's life. Now, somebody would say, why would we ever do something like that? I believe that retaining a person's sins unto them is something that under a given situation can be beneficial, and that's what church discipline is. In other words, the body of Christ should be praying for each other and binding Satan, remitting people's sins. When you see a brother that's having a problem, there should be such love and compassion that you intercede for him and you pray and say, Satan, you can't have them. They may not understand this yet, and I'm standing in agreement for them, and I'm binding you and commanding you to get off of them. So you intercede and you bind those demonic things. You are remitting their sins. But if a person begins to start taking the liberty that you're giving them through your intercession. And they use that liberty to simply go live in sin without suffering all of the strict consequences of sin. Then there comes a time when binding the devil off of them actually is doing them a disservice because they aren't understanding that their sin is costing them something. They're thinking, well, I'm getting by. I hadn't had any bad effects yet. And so there comes a time that you literally need to withdraw that intercession and let their sins be retained unto them. And when they begin to start experiencing this um, results of sin, the wages of sin coming into their life, and they begin to start being destroyed by it, the hope is that they will recognize that that sin is not prospering them. They'll turn from it and come back unto the Lord. Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. And that is not the way that God really wants to deal with us. God doesn't just blast us. Every time we get out of line, He just blasts us with some type of punishment, sickness, disease, poverty, etc. That's not the way that God deals with us. It's His love that draws us to us. And that's the way that God deals with people. That's the way that the body should deal with a member of the body who's fallen into some type of sin or rebellion or false teaching. You in love should continue to remit their sins, pray for them, intercede for them, etc. But... If it reaches a place to where this person hardens themselves and they literally are just going headlong into sin, they are going right after the devil and they aren't understanding what's happening because they aren't reaping any negative effects from that sin, as a last resort, we can retain that person's sins unto them and it hopefully will cause them to repent as it did this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now let me give you an example of what we're talking about. There was a time that I pastored a church in Seagaville, Texas. And there was a young man there named Andy who got born again. He had been a drug dealer. He had been into nearly every type of sin that you could possibly be in. And he was born again and baptized in the Holy Spirit and really started growing in the Lord. And I personally ministered to him. And he would share things with me and say, Boy, this is what God told me. And I'd say, Yeah, that's a scripture. And he'd look at me and he says, that's in the Bible. And, I mean, God was speaking things to him that were exactly word-for-word word scripture. And he wasn't getting it directly out of the word. He was getting it directly from God. He had direct revelation from God. Some good things were happening in his life. So, anyway, he was a part of this church that I pastored there. But he got really discouraged because when he went back to school, uh, the Christian friends that he had made completely shunned him because he received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So he no longer, I mean, he was getting actual persecution from the Christians because he was trying to live for God. And uh, he finally just got so bummed out that he, his old doper friends, they would accept him. 
and he began to go back around with them. He got on to dope men. Well, over a period of a year and a half or two years' time, he went back into his old lifestyle. Now, as a pastor of this church, we had been praying for him, and I mean, we went meant daily, and this was a close fellowship of believers. We prayed for that man daily. We bound the devil over him. We were rebuking the devil. I knew that Satan was trying to get him uh, killed. I knew that Satan would try and put uh, all kinds of sexual diseases on him and things like this. And Satan was trying to destroy his life. So we stood and we bound those things and interceded for him on a daily basis. After a period of time, my associate pastor and I, Marshall Townsley, we went over to see this guy. And we were talking to him and trying to talk to him about coming back to the Lord and getting back into the church and quitting his lifestyle, etc. And we were talking to him and, and we said, Andy, we know you're miserable. We know that you don't have any peace. We know that, man, you're just, the wages of sin is death and that you're miserable, etc. And we were talking to him. He looked at us and he says, no, you're wrong. He says, now, I got to admit that there's a difference between the way I feel now and when I was in fellowship with the Lord. He said, there's a big difference. But he says, it's not like it was before. He says, before I got born again, he said, I was demon-possessed. I was so depressed and oppressed. He says, it was miserable. I couldn't even stand to live. And he says, it's not that way. He says, I am not experiencing the same discouragement and stuff. He says, it's not as good as it was, but he says, it's tolerable. He said, there is a difference. And anyway, we left there. And Marshall and I began to discuss this and say, man, that doesn't sound right. What's happening? And when we went home that night, I began to pray about it, and the Lord spoke to him, and he says, What's happening is you and that body of believers are binding the devil over him, and you're rebuking every single thing that the devil can do. And this guy literally is uh, living free from a lot of the negative effects of his sin that he normally would have. You're praying it off of him. You're keeping Satan at bay, and Satan is not able to destroy him the way that he should be because of the place that this man was given to him. And when I saw that, I was brand new in the Lord, and I hadn't really gone through a lot of this, and I didn't follow all of the steps listed here in Matthew chapter 18. And uh, I got to plead guilty on that. But nonetheless, I saw that our intercession was remitting this man's sins, and that he had taken this intercession as a... as freedom as liberty to just persist in sin he was living with a girl and doing some other things he wasn't married to her and so as a result i prayed about it for about a day or so and then finally i came before the church body and i I explained to him what i saw and what i believed was happening and i said i personally believe that we ought to retain this man's sins unto him and just turn him over to satan now, by turning him over to Satan, I was not saying that we were damning him and saying that he was lost. We don't have the authority to do that. But what we were doing was withdrawing our remittance, our intercession, and actually saying, we believe that the sins are going to reap what they sow. Not for the purpose of hurting him, but rather for the purpose of giving him uh, revelation that Satan is out to kill him and hopefully that he would repent and turn. And I told the church that. Everybody agreed. And so we did that as a church body. We agreed that we would not intercede and bind those things off of him anymore. But instead, we were going to allow him to reap what he sowed. And we did that as a church body. Did you know that the very next day, I was out painting a house with Marshall. And this guy came running up to us. And he was panicked. And I mean, he came up and he says, what did you do? And boy, I mean, he was upset. I said, what do you mean? He said, you did something. He says, man, my world came crashing in on me last night. And he says, I'm miserable. He says, it's as bad as it was before I was born again. And he began to say, you did something. says, I have now depressed and everything had returned unto him. 
and I saw a graphic illustration of the fact that we can bind Satan over a person and we can actually loose Satan in a person. We can remit sins or re- we can retain their sins unto them, as it says in John twenty twenty three. Now, in this instance, this guy did repent to a degree. He began to start coming back to the Lord some, but then I left the area, and I honestly don't know what the total outcome of it was. Like I said, we didn't even do it totally scriptural, but nonetheless, the point was made that I saw that through our intercession, we could keep Satan at bay, or through our intercession, we could actually take down the the uh, walls around the person and allow Satan to penetrate. And that's a harsh thing to do. I personally believe that this should never be done on an individual basis because it would be very easy for an individual just to get mad at a person and begin to start saying, well, I'm just going to turn you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. And you can actually start operating in witchcraft, curses, where it's not directed by God and it's not beneficial. It's just used as a way of of uh, getting even with somebody, trying to railroad somebody into something. And that would be totally wrong. And so this is a very dangerous thing to do. And I believe that's the reason that these steps Jesus gave are the criteria that you ought to always follow them. You ought to go talk to the person individually, take with you one or two more, get that third-person perspective. Then it ought to be agreed on as a body of believers. There ought to be agreement among the entire body. And again, the purpose of that is it keeps one person from railroading another person because the entire body is not going to go for something like that. And it certainly ought to be done under the direction of the eldership of the church uh, because they should be called and anointed by God. They should have experience in some of these things. And uh, hopefully they would give the balance and any person who is doing it in an incorrect way uh, would not be able to do it. This ought to literally be a last resort done directly under the leadership of the Lord. It should never be done just out of our own mental ability saying, well, this looks to me like what it should be done. This is the kind of thing that ought to be prayed about and done only if God really directs it. But this is what turning a person over to Satan is. It is not a damning of them. It is not a total rejection. It's not a punishment. But rather what it is, it's simply withdrawing of intercession and an, a retaining of their sins unto them. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I believe it does need to be a... Uh, deliberate action. It needs to be done just not by neglect, but it needs to be an actual turning of a person over to Satan. And, and notice that Paul said, when you're gathered together, I believe that that goes along with the steps Jesus gave in Matthew 18 about first of all going one-on-one and then taking one or two more and then bringing him before the church. In other words, it it shows that these steps were made. There was a church function here, and there is a deliberate retaining of this person's sins unto him. In other words, you would just simply say, Father, we are now stopping our intercession for this person, not because we don't love him, but because we do love him. And he's been taking our intercession and the liberty it produces as uh, an occasion to go live in sin. And right now we just stop that intercession. We believe that from this time on, he's reaping what he sows. His sins are retained unto him. And Father, we thank you that that's going to bring him to his senses, cause him to repent, and that when he does, we'll forgive him and receive him back into fellowship. That's the kind of uh, statement that it should be, and it needs to be done openly as a church body. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul there said that when you do this, count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 
In other words, you don't just totally forsake this guy and hate him, and every time you see him spit in his face or do something like that, the way some people have imagined church discipline, you're really loving this guy, and it's love that caused you to do what you've done. You are simply separating yourself for the purpose of letting him see that, man, his sin is going to kill him, and hopefully he'll wise up. If he won't respond to the goodness of God, then let the hard knocks of the devil open his eyes up and cause him to repent. Now, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 here, it's made very clear that the way you do this is to withdraw from this man and keep no company with him that he may be ashamed. The same thing is said over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says that you should not you know, come out altogether from the uh, sinners in the world because then you'd have to leave the world. But it says if any man that's a brother is called a fornicator, covetous, idolater, etc., with such a one know not to eat. So this church discipline is a withdrawal of intercession, a retaining of their sins unto them, and then also a withdrawal of fellowship. And if you would picture in your mind the way the first century church was, where, I mean, there was close fellowship, so much so that they actually sold all of their possessions and and held all things common. There was a close fellowship. These people many times were martyred for their faith, and the only real friends that they had was in the body of Christ. And also, you need to get this as a part of the picture, that the body of Christ in the New Testament days was not divided into different churches, different denominations, etc. In one town, there was one church. There was the church at Jerusalem, the church at Ephesus, the church at Antioch, etc. There was one fellowship. So see, this fellowship, this disfellowshipping a person where you were no longer in close communion with them, you were no longer interceding and binding Satan off of them, etc. This could be a devastating punishment because that person literally was cut off from any godly influence. And unless they had just totally become reprobate and chosen the devil, then I mean they couldn't have any of the advantages that went along with being a member of the body of Christ. They couldn't receive the love. They couldn't participate in the worship and the praise. They couldn't receive any of the positive effects. They weren't going to get the prayers of the people around. And I mean it just literally isolated them. Satan came in on them like a flood. And I believe that just as it did with this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it caused them to repent. It says that this was a severe punishment inflicted on him of many. And it says, comfort him. Build him up so that he won't be overwhelmed or overcome with sorrow. This was a severe punishment. In our day and age, I believe that church discipline still should be executed. But it's going to have minimal impact because our situation has deteriorated so much that the body of Christ isn't in that kind of a unity. In the first place, by neglect, we actually have been turning our members over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh because we, most people, don't really intercede for each other the way that the Bible admonishes us to. So maybe it hasn't been a deliberate, intentional act, but by neglect, we've actually taken the heads down from around each other and allowed Satan to come in like a flood and destroy people because we just haven't been interceding properly. And so in a sense, we have been turning people over to Satan because we haven't been uh, operating in the intercession, remittance of people's sins the way that the Word tells us that we should. So if we haven't been interceding and binding Satan off of a person, a withdrawal of our intercession is going to be negligible. Most people wouldn't even notice it. Also, there isn't this close unity and fellowship so that a person would really be brokenhearted if one church rejected them. Most people don't have that kind of close ties in their church. And if they did, because we have so many different denominations in one town, people, if they got um, 
disfellowshipped at one church in a proper way, according to what we're talking about, could just go down the street, join another church, and begin to receive all of the benefits of their fellowship and help and prayers, etc. So those things are going to minimize the effectiveness of this church discipline because the body of Christ is not in unity and harmony the way that it should be. But I don't believe that that's a justification just not to do it. This ought to be, for one thing, this teaching on church discipline should encourage us about the power that we have to really intercede one for another. Matter of fact, when Jesus taught on this in Matthew chapter 18, these scriptures that we used about going to the brother personally and then taking one or two more, bringing him to the church, etc. In verses 18 and 19, he's still talking about church discipline. And he says, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Now that has other applications, and people use this all of the time, applying it in many different ways, and those things can be done. But in context, he's talking about church discipline, and what he's doing is just saying, look, you do have the power to literally bind Satan over a person or to loose Satan in a person. Whatever you agree on here on this earth, it shall be done. And what he's doing is saying that there is tremendous power and authority vested in the body of Christ, even this power to execute church discipline. Somebody might think, well, who cares if you quit praying for me or interceding for me? I don't care. Well, boy, they just don't understand the power that's in the body of Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus right here just validated and says there is tremendous power. Whatever you agree on here on this earth, it shall be done. If you are agreeing and binding the devil, the devil will be bound. If you loose him and retain those sins, then he is loose. Those sins are going to reap what they've sown. And Jesus validated that here. So there's tremendous power in this. And it's something that could be very effective. So one of the things to learn out of this teaching on church discipline is that, first of all, we are not exercising our intercession in the positive way to actually keep Satan at bay off of people. And our many people in the body of Christ are being destroyed and picked off by the devil because we don't intercede for each other properly. So one thing this ought to admonish us to do is to really get back to interceding and lifting each other up and standing in the gap for each other the way that the Word of God teaches us that we should. If we do that, what would happen is that people would begin to grow and mature. They would begin to prosper. Another result would be that, man, there would begin to be a unity built among the body of Christ. As we lifted each other up on a daily basis and prayed for each other, there would be a closeness, a unity, a love to where our church body would become more important to us than our own physical physical family. I mean, they would become our life. These people would get to where we would lay down our life for our brothers. That's the way that Jesus taught that it should be, and yet that's not so in most churches. If those things begin to function and operate that way, then when you see a brother fall into sin, or if you see him fall into doctrinal error, or if you see him fall into just a total irresponsible lifestyle that Satan has taken advantage of, you could go and execute church discipline on that man, one-to-one, then with two or three others, and then bring it before the church. And if it had to come to a place of turning him over to Satan, and I tell you, that would be powerful. It would cause that man to repent, and it would bring him back into relationship with the Lord. God gave this church discipline to us not as a form of rejection towards people, but actually as a way of releasing our love, a way of helping a person. Praise God that the Lord didn't just leave us to be out here on our own. 
we're supposed to function as a unit, and we do have authority over each other. If we were praying and interceding for each other properly, then it would be a severe punishment to withdraw that love and fellowship. So I pray that this teaching on church discipline has maybe clarified some areas and at the same time admonished us to begin to apply intercession and intercede for each other with a new zeal, knowing that it is effective and that it's a powerful thing, that a lack of intercession is actually like turning a person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And it's a severe thing that should be done only under the direct direction of the Holy Spirit with all of the checks and balances that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And I believe it should be done under the leadership of the church elders. I would go on to say, though, in Matthew 18, 18 and 19, Jesus made it clear that if there's only two gathered together in his name, that's verse 20, that there he is in the midst. And I believe that if the church is not functioning properly and if the eldership does not understand this and if there is discord and disharmony among the body, etc., yet if there are two or three people in that church who have been operating in intercession and have been keeping Satan at bay over a person, that even two or three people could execute this judgment. And I believe that that's the statements there in verses 18, 19, and 20, where it says, where two or three are gathered together uh, in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It could be done even with two or three. Our church situation is not as it should be, but we still, if we first of all are interceding for others and keeping Satan at bay, then there is a place for this church discipline and it can be effective, maybe not as effective, but it can be effective even when two or three execute it. So I pray that this helped and at the same time I really pray that a person doesn't take this and use it in a way that is just justifying their own flesh or their own desires. This ought to be a last resort and it ought to be totally motivated by love. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.